0: All right, we're going to be in John chapter 3, John chapter 3. We are uh, walking through the book of John right now. Um, That's kind of our our, our bread and butter, is that we just try to walk through uh, books of the Bible. Uh, The the reason being is because we just want to get a well-rounded course of what God says. So instead of trying to pick and choose, we're just going to walk through it and see what the Lord has to say to us. So John chapter 3, if you got it, say, I got it. If you don't got it, say, wait a minute. i wait on the TV. It, it will be on the TV. Lord hope. We'll see. All right. So as you're getting there, boom, there it is. Um, so one thing that I've, I've noticed is every movement emphasizes the story and teachings of its founders. So for example, Uh, We just had Black History Month where we have heard about, again, Martin Luther King and and Malcolm X and various leaders within the civil rights movement. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter if people have already heard about the founders. You still tell it. A lot of times, it's not necessarily new information, right? The teachings of of nonviolence, if you've been around for a while, it's not new, but nevertheless, it is important to highlight who the founders were and what exactly they taught. You know, the, the, the stories and the teachings of the founder strengthen the identity of the movement. It also strengthens the commitment to the movement. So whether it's a political movement, a religious movement, a social movement, what have you, they're going to rehearse stories and teachings of the founder. So this is true of this movement that we call Christianity. Our faith is fundamentally about what Jesus has done and what he has taught. And so it's important to review these things, even if we think we know them already, because it strengthens the identity of of what we call the church— And our commitment to this man, Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to cover today in John 3 is wonderful news that you might have heard before. But I believe it will be strengthening and encouraging to your soul. The truth that Jesus makes us new. And that he saves us from judgment. Let's look at verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with them. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, that who, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would speak to us through your word. We need your intervention. We need the power of the Spirit that you would speak to us, that we would understand, and that we would obey. So I ask that you would guide my words today, and would you give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's, let's set the scene. What is, what is going on? So Nicodemus, uh, he's, he's an important person, and, and he comes to Jesus at night. That's what it says, right? It says, this man came to him at night. And he said, Rabbi, we know your teacher has come from God. No one could perform these signs. Who is this guy? Why was he flattering Jesus? So Nicodemus was part of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, if you've read the Gospels even a little bit, you'll understand that the Pharisees and Jesus were not cool, Right? The Pharisees not only uh, disliked Jesus a little bit, they, they, they actually hated him. There's one of their own coming to him. And not only is he's a regular guy, says that, 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 that he is a ruler of the Jews, not, not that he is a king, but that he is an expert in the Jewish law. Now, this man who was an expert in the Jewish law, who was well-respected by his peers, decided to come to Jesus at night. Wow. why why does he have to hide? He shouldn't have to hide. He's well-respected. He should be able to defend himself scripturally for what he's doing. Yet nonetheless, he comes to Jesus at night. See, this is a person who did not want to risk identification with Jesus because of ostracism. Maybe, maybe he was afraid that he would lose his title as an expert of the law. Maybe he was afraid that he would get kicked out of the exclusive group of the Pharisees. Whatever the reason is, he, he liked Jesus enough to go and see him. He liked Jesus enough to even flatter him with nice words. But he did not like him enough to be identified with him. This is an important distinction. That, that The fact of the matter is, most people have good things to say about Jesus. Now, I'm sure there are some people who say this, but I've never personally met anybody who says, you know what, I don't like him. I've never heard anybody, I don't care if they are a Christian or not, when they, when they hear about what Jesus has done and, and the teachings of, of love and, and care for your enemy and care for the poor, everybody generally has favorable things to say about him. But when it comes to identifying with him, to saying, This, this is my Lord, I'm identifying with his teachings. We all in, instinctually know that that is different. You know, I remember when, when I was uh, a missionary and I'd be teaching people about Jesus, and nobody was like, Nah, that's horrible. You know what I mean? Everybody was like, Man, that's awesome. He did what? He loves me like that, and I'm like, yes, he's so good, and we would have months and months of conversation. And then I say, hey, you ready to get baptized? And they go, well, I like him, but but what will, what will they think? So Nicodemus is obviously having some sort of internal struggle, and, and the question is, what did he want? I, I love the fact that that Jesus just calls him because he's like, oh, what, what, you 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 you've done so many good things, you must be from God, and and Jesus is like, listen, you ain't coming up in here unless you've been born again. Like he just he just calls him out, like, thank you for flattering me, but I know that's not why you are here. So what is he talking about? What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is, is all of our hopes and dreams wrapped up into one statement. The fact that, that we long for love, for justice, for peace, for unity. We, we long for a society in which things are cohesive. That, the, that people are not growing hungry and that people are treating each other with kindness. All of that is wrapped up into the statement, the kingdom of God. It is the place where God reigns. And if he is the just ruler, where he reigns is full of justice. You, you can see this most clearly, at least in America, I think in election season. How, how so much hope, right? Right? is tied up into this candidate or this other candidate. They think, well, if I follow this person, then then the just society, how I want to define justice, then the just society that I want will be here. That the the injustices that exist, that they will be corrected. That those who need to be helped will get help. We see this, and it's so funny because people, they're, they're not articulating, but they're actually longing for something that is eternal. Something that satisfies a hunger that each and every one of us feels. Longing for the perfect ruler who would enact the perfect government. And Jesus says, you can't see it, you can't get into it unless you're born again. In other words, he says to Nicodemus, listen, I know you don't see that right now. I know that, that that is a longing in your heart. But you have not yet experienced it. So if, if, if you've been in the church a little bit, while wow, we, we talk about uh, evangelism, and one of the things that we use is the three circles. Now, I'm not going to explain the whole thing, but the first idea is we talk about what would this world be if it were perfect? And you hear all, you know, love, justice, people would care about one another. And people, people can go on and on about what this world ought to be. And then you ask the simple question, Is it that way? And there is always a universal answer. (laughs) No, it is not. But it's interesting, C.S. Lewis talks about that if, if we have a desire for a thing, it is evidence that the thing exists. Yeah? So if I'm like, man, I really want pepperoni pizza. The assumption that there is a thing called pepperoni pizza because I have the desire. So that the universal desire for love and justice and and, and a benevolent rulership, it points to the fact that that actually is a thing. And Jesus is saying that it is found in him. We see here that that though this is a longing and though if we heard Jesus describe the kingdom, we would say, I want that. But we have to understand that salvation is not simply an admiration of Jesus. So we must be careful make sure that we understand this salvation. Again, if you walk down the street and you're like, do you like Jesus? Nine times out of ten, people are like, yeah, he's cool. I think he's all right. See, most people have a favorable view of Jesus, but everybody wants to to have him on their side. So you'll notice how people talk. A lot of times when they talk about Jesus, they talk about him in such a way that will justify their particular opinion of their particular cause. But the reality is that he's not trying to be on your side. You need to be on his side. And so if you were to hear someone say, hey, you must be born again, and you were not familiar with this passage, I imagine you would be a little bit confused, too. So Jesus explains. Look at verse 4. It says, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I think this is him being snarky because he don't really, I mean, it's real. you know, like, can we do that, Jesus? You know, but, first all, Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus is obviously frustrated. I mean, he's frustrated because that's a weird answer. I'm sure, like, if Jesus would have given him something that he could do, he would have considered doing it. But there's something in what Jesus said that shows that that Nicodemus is unable to do on his own what Jesus requires. That That is the situation that we are all in. He says, someone must be born of of water and the spirit. So the reality of the Bible teaching is this, is that we are born into sin. The Bible says that we were created in God's image. So there is something beautiful about each and every one of us. But yet we are all marked with sin. There's something fundamentally wrong with humanity. You know, I was, I was having a, a conversation at, at uh Carolina High School and in, uh, in the FCA, and we've been, me and Caleb have been begging him to ask us questions so we could like answer real questions. They finally started asking, and they're like, so Jesus didn't sin, right? We're like, yeah, yeah, he didn't sin. He's like, so everybody else sins? Yep, yeah, everybody else sins. Well, well, what if I didn't do or say anything? Would I be sinning? I said, that's a good question. That's a good question. I said to him, why does a, fi- a fish swim? And He was like, what? I was like, just tell me why a fish swims. And He was like, because he's a fish. I'm like, yeah, yeah. So, so what we do actually points to something in our nature. What we do are, are not random things that happen to us. The, the actions that we engage in, actually, Jesus says that they come from the inside. So if there is sin coming from the inside in our actions, it is actually pointing to something that's fundamentally wrong on the inside of us. Our actions come from our identity. And so if everyone is a partaker in sin, that means that something fundamental at the core, we are sinners. If this is true, then we need more than five steps to this or that. If that's true, my advice like I can give all the advice to the fish I want to. So I'm like, you need to learn how to walk. Walk. You put one fin in the front of the other. The fish is like, "Man, that's cool or whatever, but I'm a fish. This is the issue. This is the problem that that the the Bible uh, uh, paints for us that we see in humanity. And here's the interesting thing about it. Like, if you were really honest, if you're feeling some pushback, I I don't think you can have it for too long because the reality is it doesn't matter what the law is. Let's say if you made your own law, you will realize that you can't even keep your own law. You can make your own rules, And think, ah, these are the, the, the rules that are good. And then you'll find yourself a day or two later breaking the own rule that you made. There's something fundamental that when we are faced with a law, there is a pushback against the law. So what are we to do? There must be a drastic and deep change. And Jesus says you must be born by the water and by the spirit. Now, when he says the water, he's he's alluding to all of these Old Testament prophecies about about God cleansing his people. That when we see our nature, there's there's something flawed about it. There's there's something that that needs to be be clean. And, And here's the beautiful thing. Listen, if God says that he is going to wash me, then I will be clean. Now, I have little kids and I'll say, hey, go wash your hands. They go wash their hands, and I do an inspection. I'm like, well, let's go on ahead together. (laughs) Let's go on back to the sink. I I, I know a little bit more about washings, and so if I wash their hands, they're going to be clean. But they can't wash their own hands, not effectively. In the same way, we don't have the power to clean ourselves up. We don't have the skill to do it on our own. But we have a God who sees our dirt and says, actually, I will clean you. I will take the responsibility. Not only that, it says says that we must be born by the Spirit. Now, one of the ways that the New Testament describes or an adjective for the Spirit, they say the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That is one of the primary adjectives. So when we think about the Spirit, we have to think about something that is powerful, that can take someone that has been dead and raise him to life. That this is the type of power that is at work in us when we come to Jesus. That there is a a radically powerful transformation. It can be described as being born again. It's taking something and making it completely new. That is the promise of Jesus. That 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 I am that when I'm born the first time, I am formed by sin. This principle of sin, like like infects all of my decisions and all of my desires. But then Jesus comes and he says, Actually, I'm going to give you new desires. I'm going to want, I'm going to make you want new decisions. And what's so interesting, it says, it says we, we can only see the effects of the new birth. Remember that little, little sentence at the end? It's like uh, the wind goes where it wants to, but you can't see the wind. What is he talking about there? Like if somebody's born, naturally, you're like, they were born. You can see it, <laughs> right? It happened. Uh, but this is a little different. So you can't observe the new birth exactly like the old one, but you can see the change when it begins to happen. So I I can't see the wind, but when I walk outside, I can see the leaves moving. Then I go, well, it must be windy today. (laughs) The same is true with the new birth, that that when someone comes to Jesus, though I might not be able to see on the inside of their hearts, but that the wind of the Spirit is blowing and their actions, their desires, they begin to change. What's beautiful is, like, we've gotten to see that either you have experienced it or you have seen it. When we think of wind, I think we think about a gust sometimes. Like, uh, but in reality, like wind blows down trees, right? When there's a tornado, buildings get knocked down. This is the power of the new birth that can radically change something. Though you might not be able to see it happening on the inside, you can see some effects happening on the outside. Now, Jesus is making some big claims here, and Nicodemus is like, I don't know. (laughs) You're saying a lot of stuff, Jesus. Look at verse 12. It says, if I told you about earthly things and you don't believe me, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There's two things I can get from this text. One is that Jesus is so gracious to use everyday things— to explain the mysteries of God. If you ever just like just do a cursory reading of Jesus' teachings, he's talking about farming and like wheat and tares and like cups. You know, like, it's like real, normal, everyday things. And that itself is a grace. But I, I have been told, I said, you know that you are really a teacher when you can take a complex subject and explain it to a child. Right? That's, just, that's what Jesus is doing. He takes these complex, mysterious, heavenly things and explains them in such a way where we can actually grasp them. And Jesus, he's saying, listen, let me tell you why I know what I'm talking about. Look, he came from heaven. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven. Like, I have been in heaven. I have been with God the Father where we made these decisions on how things should work. He was in the council. You know, he didn't hear it secondhand. He was right there because he is God in the flesh. So we, we, we have uh, the, these two truths that, that Jesus makes us new, that he knows what he's talking about from, because of where he came. And the last thing is that Jesus saves us from judgment. Now, if you ever have known anything about Christianity, you probably have heard John 3.16. One of the most quoted passages. You probably haven't heard John 3, 14 a lot. So let's look at it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, and everybody say, huh? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. Get this, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he is not believing in the name of the one and only son of God. So the first thing we got to ask ourselves is that statement about the snake and Moses, what is he talking about? I'm going to read where that comes from. That comes from Numbers 21. It's a short story. This is when the people of God are kind of wandering in the wilderness. Numbers 21, four says, Then they were sent out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? Where are you at? There is no bread or water And we detest this wretched food. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them, so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who was bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and he recovered. Now, if you're reading that story in your morning devotion, you still might be a little confused. Yeah? You're like, man, that was that's one of them, them deep cuts, right? So let's let's just analyze what's happening. <laughs> So we see God's judgment coming on people who are grumbling against God. Now, that might seem like, well, God's kind of moody or something, right? You're like, why why can't he just take it? But the reality is this, is that distrust in God leads to our destruction. This is the story over and over again, right? Like with Adam and Eve, will you trust me? Nope, destruction, Right? And fundamentally, when we are led into sin, it is not necessarily an issue of, of do we have some sort of beef with someone else. The core of it is do I trust God? So when I, when I say I'm going to steal something, I'm saying oh, I don't actually trust God to provide for me. Right? When I want to take revenge on someone, I'm, I'm not trusting that God is the one who says, actually, I, that's, that's my department. I'm the judge that that when we are, are allowed to distrust and grumble against God and that spreads and spreads and spreads what the result is is sinfulness what the result is is destruction so God's God's judgment is not because he is moody God's judgment is because he loves people and wants people to understand. Listen, if you grumble against him, if you distrust him, that destruction follows. People are really like finicky about justice in the scriptures. It makes people uncomfortable. But what's so interesting is in a society, we are always talking about justice. Like we like when somebody is wronged, everybody goes, somebody needs to fix that. Right? Always. Oh, that is all the news is is, is someone like, like like showing something that is unjust, and then society going, Well, somebody get them. We need to handle this. We understand the goodness of judgment when it's not against us. Yeah? We all were like, you need to correct what is, what is wrong. And then it's like, the Bible's like, well, no, it's you. And it's like, I don't like that. You know? <laughs> no, but that is the reality, that any injustice that I see out there, I can see the seeds of that injustice in my own heart. And so we see that the Scripture says that, that those who haven't trust in Jesus are judged already. That because of our sin, that because of our, the wickedness of our own heart, there is this, this judgment, this impending judgment that is just that is coming. And so what happened in, in the Old Testament? So, so, so they were grumbling against God, and then these snakes came out, and then, then Moses built this statue of a snake, and he held it up, and he said, anybody who looks at the snake will be healed. Here's the interesting thing. In order to be healed in that story... You had to look your own sin in the face. Yeah? You knew what the snake represented. It was biting people. You knew to look at the snake. You couldn't just bypass your culpability in the judgment. You had to look right at it. But here's the beautiful thing. God says, you, you look at your sin in the face. And you ask me for forgiveness. What is that? Everybody who looked at the snake was healed. God had them look at what symbolized their disobedience for healing. You cannot come to Jesus without facing your own sin in the face, without staring it down. Listen, the, the, the forgiveness of, uh, from, that comes from Jesus is not a, a, an overstepping or a sweeping under the rug of your own sin. It is an acknowledgment that I am guilty and I need a Savior. See, we can see the judgment that we deserve on the cross of Jesus. I want you to understand this. Jesus' cross is not his cross. He did not, like, it wasn't because of what he has done that he is on that cross. He is completely and wholly innocent. So when I am looking at the cross of Jesus, it's my cross. It's what I deserve. And so when I look at the cross, I have to look at my sin, straight at my sin. The ugliness of my sin is what put Jesus on the cross. But, beloved, when I look at the cross, I get healing. When I look at the cross, I get forgiveness. Jesus takes away the curse of sin. The scripture says by, by being judged in our place, by becoming sin. For us, the scripture is really clear why why did he come down and suffer and die it 's because God loves us isn't that interesting? like like we, we think about like we have these two things working together that God is a a just God and that he's all, also a god of love so 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 if he a just God he he has to respond to injustice. But if he's a loving God, he responds with mercy. And in the cross, we see both. That God doesn't, doesn't like put a rug over sin. He deals with it in the cross. And as we look at Jesus on the cross, as we look at our sin that placed him there, we see God's mercy for us. So coming to Jesus from this text it means at least two things. The first is that we are made new. That, that we can have a new nature. That we can be born again. It also means that we can have real forgiveness. I love it. Any, anytime you are, if you are in Christ, you're doubting your forgiveness. Man, take this advice. Look to him. Look to him. Every time guilt or shame is hovering over you, look to that cross. I know that, that that is your sin being dealt with. That is God's love to you being displayed. That is the beauty of what we have in this gospel. And I love it that, that it is a free offer for everybody, right? It says, whosoever, Everyone. Anyone who looks to him can be made new. Anyone who looks to him can be forgiven. And so the question is this. Have we trusted in him? Have we understood that to look at Jesus means that I acknowledge fully my own culpability, my own sin? I don't try to sweep it out of the rug. I don't make excuses about it. I see its fullness. And at the same time, I see it fully put on Jesus on the cross. Have I trusted him in this way? The other thing I think this is so beautiful is that in both of these regards, it is not up to you. You can't make yourself new and you didn't die on the cross. That like our salvation is wholly up to Jesus. And because it's up to him, he can accomplish what he set out to do. And so as we look at at these truths that you might have heard over and over again, it should renew a sense of thankfulness and worship because Jesus saved you unilaterally despite of yourself and he has this proof that stands for eternity This cross, these wounds in his hands and the fact that he rose from the dead we can have this eternal gratefulness and this worshipful attitude because Jesus has saved us this is the good news y'all you know today we get to do something cool we get to to participate and and watch a baptism I love, I love the fact that he says this, if anybody is, is going to come to me, he must be born again of water and the Spirit. So baptism is, is a symbol of the cleansing that Jesus has done. And what I love is this, it says that, 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 that when, when, when we go down in baptism, it represents the death of Jesus in our place. And listen, it also represents the death of our old nature. And then when we come up, it represents the fact that we are vindicated because Jesus has been vindicated and we get to walk in the newness of life. Listen, even if you're not the one getting baptized today and you have trusted in Jesus, that is a sign and a message for you. That that is a reality that you have participated in and that you get to participate in. Y'all, he's good. And our salvation is sure. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your love, for your mercy, for your kindness. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged in the truth of your gospel. And Lord God, that if, if someone is here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would run to you. That they would see you are a God of both justice and mercy, of truth and forgiveness. So would you save, and Lord, would you encourage your people? In Jesus' name, amen. We respond in a couple of ways every Sunday. Uh, One of the ways we respond is through communion. On the night before he was crucified, He, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. So as we stand in worship, as you feel led, please come and take the bread and and dip it into the cup.